It won't surprise you to hear that for generations, the civic bonds of Americans have been unraveling. One researcher uh, put it this way, Americans attend fewer club meetings, have fewer dinner parties, eat dinner together as a family less, and are much less connected to their neighbors. They are more skeptical of institutions. They spend more time alone watching television or cocooning on the internet. Another social commentator writes this, competition, hostility, and fear have replaced the warmth of the circle of affection which might sustain man against a hostile environment. America has become one vast, terrifying anti-community. The result is that ordinary people feel more anxious, isolated, and vulnerable. This is the situation in which we find ourselves here, and probably it's similar in other places around the world. Those who shine most brightly in this dark age, this age of anti-community, will not be disconnected believers, but those who live like church is family. And so uh, to live that way, I want to encourage us uh, with two uh, considerations. First, we need to understand that community is something that God creates. And second, it's something that we practice. And we really do have to get those in the right order, lest we suspect that we can create ourselves some sort of utopian community. So let's first of all consider the reality of biblical community. Just looking at that word community, um, even, even commonly understood, we see that it is a body of individuals unified by a common history, character, policy, interest, and activity. And so we can say that the church is a holy community. Believers have a shared history, outsiders to God's family brought together through Christ's blood. Believers are united in character. We share the Holy Spirit and put on the virtues of Jesus. We are united also in a shared policy uh, of, of the Word of God. Believers have a common interest in God's glory and the salvation of sinners. And believers are united in shared activities of worship and holy living. And so um, we, we are a community. And this, this is a project of God's doing, God's initiative, God's sustaining. Christ is building a church by bringing saved sinners into community with himself and other believers through his work on the cross. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks of our status as outsiders um, that's only changed by what Jesus Christ does on the cross, bringing reconciliation. We don't create community. We are brought into a community. Philip Ryken, uh, reflecting on baptism, by which we are identified as Christ's community, says this, baptism is a countercultural act, almost a form of protest over against everything that tries to define us, our career, our citizenship, our status as consumers in a market economy. Baptism locates our primary identity in the body of Christ, specifically as members 
of a local church. And we believe that in baptism, primarily what's happening is uh, an identification of what God is doing, what he is saying about his people. And so before community is an imperative, which is so much the emphasis today, uh, you must, you uh, shall create, this is how you're going to bring about community. Before it's any of that, it is an indicative. You are. You are the people of God. So to live in community, we must come to terms with the reality of who we are in Christ. Um, I suspect I won't be uh, the last one, given the theme of community this year for chapels, the last one to reference Dietrich Bonhoeffer's excellent a little book, Life Together, and particularly the first chapter, which is called Community. Such a very good chapter. But he says in that chapter, in Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon its being clear right from the beginning. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. And this is so important because um, biblical community, understood properly, actually frees us from idealism. If we view brotherhood and community as an ideal to be pursued primarily, we're going to be um, always frustrated by not achieving the ideal that we've set out to achieve. In other words, we all have a vision of what the perfect Christian community should look like. Uh, Brett McCracken wrote a book a few years ago, called Uncomfortable. It's about life in the church. And the, the introductions are very, I think it's 10 or 15 pages, in which he sketches his ideal church, what it, what it would look like if he could create the perfect community. And then he says at the end, you know, my church looks nothing like this, and I'm so glad that it doesn't. Because if we were to set out to create our perfect community, we would always be frustrated and always be disappointed. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, one who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience which he's not found elsewhere. And he's bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Uh, Herman Bovink wrote this, the saddest experience in life is indeed the sense of disappointment that one acquires through people. That's encouraging words as we prepare for the ministry, isn't it? Um, but, but he's right. We, we are frustrated and discouraged by people, but Bavink came to terms with that, that, that reality, that we're going to be disappointed with people, and that's all right. He wasn't building his hopes on his experience with people. He was resting in what Christ was doing. The reality is that the community of the church isn't everything we want it to be now. Of course, it will be one day. It will be everything we want it to be and more in glory. But it's it's right for us to come to terms with it. God is doing something right now that we receive and accept. Uh, Bonhoeffer said this, only that fellowship which faces church fellowship disappointment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. And so we are recipients of fellowship. We are brought into community. It is imperfect. We come to terms with that. We recognize that God is doing something good, uh, even through our 
imperfect community. And we recognize that we need the community of the church. We need the community of the church despite its weaknesses. The more that we might withdraw from Christian community, either through past disappointments or frustrations because of uh, inappropriate idealism or in order to uh, uh, you know, protect ourselves from being too well-known or, or whatever it might be, the more we withdraw from the church, the more vulnerable we are to imbalance and the encroachment of other bad habits. One of C.S. Lewis's friends said this, much is possible to a man in, so- in solitude, but some things are possible only to a man in companionship. And of these, the most important is balance. No mind is so good that it does not need another mind to counter and equal it and to save it from conceit and bigotry and folly. And so meaningful community and the balance that it brings can't happen if we overprotect ourselves. In fact, we need community, especially in ways that make us uncomfortable. What we think we want from a church or a a church community is almost never what we need. And that's why idealism is so dangerous. We, We set out to create something that we think we need, but God always knows better. The problem is we won't, we won't find out what it is that we need that God provides in the community that he gives us if we withdraw from it out of fear or frustration or idealism or whatever it is. So we need to, first of all, come to terms with this, that we, that um, Christian community is a reality that God is doing, God is building. It is imperfect now. We accept that. We are thankful for what God is doing, looking forward to what God will do through us in community until we experience that perfect community in glory. But there are also responsibilities uh, for those living in community. Uh, we, we put the responsibilities behind the reality, not in front of it, but we also recognize the responsibilities. And I want to reflect with you on just on four responsibilities out of, out of a host of um, uh, callings we have in community. And, th- and the first has to do with our attitude as members of God's community. And what I want to encourage us, first of all, then, is to count our blessings as community members. Thank you. So we need to count our blessings within the community. In other words, if we're always looking at what the community isn't, if we're always looking at the defects and the faults, um, we'll, we'll always be taking away from what God may have for us. So truly, the Apostle Paul meant it when he says in Philippians 1, 3, and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in prayer uh, of mine for you all, making my prayer with all joy. And so he's, he's, he's thankful. He's part of the Christian community. He knows that the Philippians, the Philippian church has issues, but he's thankful. He's emphasizing that gratitude because ingratitude is devastating to community. Grumbling and complaining can become self-fulfilling prophecies. Right? The very things that we grumble and complain about are the things that we make more true. The more critical we are of our community, the worse the situation seems, the less willing we are to invest, and soon we have become outsiders. By contrast, thankfulness can set the tone for contentment and sacrificial communal participation. Bonhoeffer again says this, those who are truly united to Christ 
enter common life, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. You recognize immediately how destructive it could be for, for us to come into a community as demanders, always expecting more and better. And But we come in as thankful recipients. We're saying, I'm so thankful to be part of this community. So the first uh, responsibility has to do with our attitude. Count your blessings. Be thankful for being part of the community that you're in, that imperfect church, that um, that Bible study, that seminary community, whatever it is that has something to be desired. Uh, be thankful for it. And you'll be in a better position to experience God's blessings. The, the, the second responsibility I want to focus on has to do with um, the, the uh, sort of a quantitative experience in the community. Um, I, I just put it this way. Don't depend on Sundays or, or whatever it is that, 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 that organized time. So I'm thinking about a church community, first of all, in which we have an organized time to gather, but we can't depend upon that if we're going to create a, a true community. We, we must be there on the Lord's day. Um, but, but the 15 or 20 minutes of, of, of socializing or sharing before or after a service is inadequate to develop the kind of um, communal life that God has for us. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.13 that we must exhort one another every day. How do we do that if we're, if we're only seeing each other um, one day a week? Compare that to a marriage. How many marriages could thrive if uh, the husband and wife only saw each other for a few hours on Sunday? Like the early church, believers should gather between Sundays, often informally, uh, to, as, as Philip Ryken says, to suffer and rejoice with one another, share burdens, and get spiritual support for facing the hard situations of life, to listen and to be encouraged and to practice spiritual accountability. It's hard to do if we meet only, for, you know, for a, a small window of time. Um, this is, it seems to me, why Paul uh, says in Acts chapter 20 that in Ephesus he ministered both publicly and from house to house. So the public ministry of the word is essential for Christian community. But why, why did he minister also from house to house? Well, because he was a believer who thought it valuable to carry on relationships with local Christians outside of the space and hours of gathered worship. And so there needs to be a sort of uh, a, a, a real quantity to our experience with other believers, spending real time, real hours with those who are members of our family. But third, there also needs to be a... Um, a quality component to our gatherings. In other words, it would be possible to spend, I suppose, 20 hours a week with other Christians or, or more and, and not get to the, to the depth that God wants us to in our experience of community. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, describes believers as, it's a very strange, strange uh, image that he gives us, but describes us as, as living stones. So these are stones, you know, you think of bricks that, that, form a building, but these are, these stones are alive. They're growing into each other. They're, they're not static. They're, they're, um, they're organic. Living stones um, experience one another in, in deep ways. Love for Christ and his church brings us into each other's lives in meaningful ways. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, we have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Widen your hearts also. So there's this 
qualitative experience of openness. In other words, make your gatherings count. Make your time together be meaningful. Um, One uh, professional gathering facilitator reminds us of something we have all experienced. The way we gather matters. And then she becomes a little more, um, a a little darker. She says, we spend our lives in gatherings, and we spend much of that time in uninspiring, underwhelming moments that fail to capture us, change us in any way, or connect us with one another. Um, That is true, isn't it? We do spend time quantitatively in gatherings that we walk away from saying, that could have been better, right? That could have been better. We could have asked more questions of one another. We could have raised topics that were of genuine interest and significance, eternal significance to us. And so we, we can't simply rely on, on, on the quantity of time, but also the quality of time that we spend with one another. Be willing to go. Uh, that, that same writer talks about, in, in, in her book on gathering, talks about uh, creating good controversy. In other words, bringing up things that you can really, that you really care about, that you're willing to debate and discuss, and not always playing it safe in gatherings. Those serious about making their gatherings count will also be willing to receive care. So when we think about communities, some of us think always about being the providers, the uh, the contributors. Um, In the book, The Art of Neighboring, the writers say this, our tendency is to put ourselves in positions of power. In this case, always being the one to give. We want to seem as the... We want to be seen as the capable one with all the resources and answers. I don't know if that resonates with you, but, but I feel that way sometimes too, that I, when I come into a gathering, I want to be the giver. I want to be the one who's, who's helping. And I don't want, it's harder to be in the, in the position of, of being vulnerable and, and revealing um, awkward realities about ourselves or admitting to things that are challenging. But that posture of always wanting to be in the position of power has so many uh, uh problems with it. It tends to strengthen our pride. Um, It sort of becomes a a, a negative uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. We're always the one giving answers, and we think that we're always the ones able to give answers. It sets a bad example to others. How many people um, are made less willing to be vulnerable by those who are always sharing uh, the best about themselves and always putting their best foot forward? So the, the, the writer I mentioned, um, she wrote a book called The Art of Gathering. Um, she, she says, keep your best self out of my gathering. That's one of her rules in gathering. Keep your best self. Keep, keep that, um, that, that facade of who you want to project. Keep that out. We, we want to bring our real selves. And of course, this attitude of, of um, always wanting to be the ones in power, giving care in gatherings, also robs others of opportunities to serve and to contribute and to share. At the funeral of a friend who took his own life a few years back, his wife said this, he did not allow himself to be vulnerable enough to be truly loved. He carried the weight of many burdens himself. I think what she she was suggesting is that relational isolation crushed him. There there was a sense in which um, the the, the lack of openness and and connectedness, truly living as living stones, just, just simply wasn't there. 
So we want to bring to our gatherings in terms of our, our communities, in terms of our responsibilities, the right attitude, an attitude of, of thankfulness. We want to make sure that there's a, a genuine uh, quantitative component to it, as well as a qualitative component. But I want to close by reflecting on um, uh, the need to have a sort of um, inclusivity in our gatherings as well. And so to put it in terms of, a, of, of, of an instruction, Scripture would say to us, include outsiders in your gatherings. Include outsiders. Sometimes our gatherings tend to be um, people who most naturally fit together or who already quite like each other and are really happy to spend time. It's comfortable and just, just makes sense. It's natural. But we need to recognize that God's cultivation of a Christian community is the ultimate expression of hospitality, of outsiders being brought in. That's the point of Ephesians 2, isn't it? You were outsiders, you were aliens and strangers, but God brought you in. He included outsiders. It's, it's the ultimate example of hospitality, which we know is, is really the love of strangers. It is... We practice hospitality by looking for people deliberately who don't fit in, who are outsiders, who aren't naturally connected to us. And we say, we want them to be included in our community as well. Those who are most conscious of God's gift of grace in their own lives actively look out for outsiders to invite in. True Christians, in other words, fiercely resist cliquish fellowship, easy fellowship, natural fellowship. Bonhoeffer pulls no punches here. He says the exclusion, he's uh, reflecting on uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25 on uh, how Jesus says that the believers, the Christian community truly cared for strangers and the poor and the needy by um, by their love, which actually included Jesus, he says. You, you did this for me. Bonhoeffer says, reflecting on Matthew 25, the exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. And so we need to be careful that we don't do that, that we don't exclude strangers, and thereby exclude Jesus. Bonhoeffer adds this, life together under the word will remain sound and healthy only where it does not turn inward, but rather where it understands itself as being part of the one holy Catholic Christian church with its beautiful diversity in solidarity with Jesus. I want to close with a, a quote from uh, Charles Colson. Uh, he said this, any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of the new society, the body of Christ. As we started, we were reflecting on the, the existing society that we as Christians um, are naturally part of. And what we find is that it's, it's, not, a, it's not a healthy community. We're, we're withdrawing from one another more and more. We're um, scared of strangers. Uh, we 
try to protect ourselves from people who are different from us. And so it's true that, that a resurgence of Christianity will be different than that. The new Christian, the new people of God are the true community. Those who want such a resurgence will live no longer as strangers and aliens, but as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to be able to do that. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this reality of what you are doing since the beginning of, of, of the human fallen experience, seeking outsiders, seeking those who have ruined not only their own lives, but also their communal life and their spiritual communal life by sin. We thank you for seeking after Adam and Eve and drawing them in by the gospel to your community and for sending uh, your word throughout the, uh, the age of the Old Testament into the New Testament in which you are constantly, graciously calling sinners to come, to come and fellowship with you through repentance and faith. We thank you for Jesus Christ, whose blood alone atones for our sins and is able to reconcile not just Jew and Gentile, but sinners with a holy God. We thank you for the promise that the blood of Christ holds out for us in our respective communities, in our families, and in our churches, our Bible studies, our uh, academic institutions, for deepening the experience that we have it, it, with one another as humans. We thank you that though we uh, are separated by, uh, oftentimes by experience, by culture, by language, by distance, and even by strife, that we can grow together as living stones. We pray that you would bless this community here, that you would bring uh, closeness and support and love to be the norm among the brothers and sisters here. And we look forward by faith to that glorious community of the redeemed in heaven and being part of that community where there is no strife, where there is no ex exclusion within the family of God. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come quickly and uh, restore everything that has become broken, even in our relationships. And in the meantime, help us to be faithful, pleading your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.